This is our Suburb Trends report for August 2020 and we'll be looking at where prices are moving across the country, either up or down, and why they're moving. In this episode, we'll be discussing the latest employment stats and what these could mean for the property market, as well as the leading indicators for hot and cold areas. Plus, we'll be looking further at the unit market for signs of a greater impact from COVID-19. 7.4% unemployment you know, rising from 7.1. I'm not buying that. That's just not representative of the anecdotal stories, the the, situ- the real situation, which would be mm. if, if you truly look at the, the data that probably should matter is hours worked. Welcome to the elephant in the room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. And I'm the data geek, Kent Lardner. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecast report which experts can you trust to get it right the elephant in the room.com.au This month, we'll be looking at the nation's hot and cold spots, those suburbs where inventory levels combined with vacancy rates are giving the strongest indication of where the market is heading. But before we go there, we're going to focus on the latest jobs data, which contains some pretty critical information for the property market. Kent, this data comes out quarterly, right? And the most recent release is for the March 2020 quarter, which won't really capture the impact of lockdowns. But before we get started on what you've seen in this data that will be relevant, can you briefly explain for the listeners who releases these stats and what's contained in them. Yeah, the small area labour markets data uh, is released quarterly. Uh, It was uh, a week or two ago that we saw the March quarter information come out. Uh, It's released down to an area called an SA2, a statistical area level two, and also the local government area. However, the big call out at the moment is, as you mentioned, that the the lags in the data are significant. Um, The seasonally adjusted unemployment rate at the moment nationally is about 7.4%. I've read many um, stories out there saying it's it's more than likely double that. Mm. And for what was the data, you know, the SA2, was there some pockets... What's SA2? Is that, uh, how big is that area? Is that Yeah, the, the, the statistical area level two, if you, if you break it down, it's a census measurement. The smallest measurement that they display all of the census information is called a, an SA1. And yeah. uh, the SA2 is, is an aggregate typically of, you know, anything from two or three suburbs grouped together. Um, yeah. and, and they're a fantastic measure. All of these statistical areas are my go-to. Um, but they, they published this at an SA2 level. Um, and when you look at, well, I've, I've just updated it on my website. You look at it and you look at the spreads across all of the SA2s when you group yeah. them together by a, 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 a broader area, an mm. SA3 area. Most of them trend very, at a very similar rate. Right. So it's not like there's one pocket of Australia that's, um, or parts of Sydney or parts of Melbourne that are getting hammered a lot more than others. That's You're finding that it's generally across the board, everyone's kind of been hit with unemployment? I think we'll see, well, my statistics or my analysis so far saw that it was very spread across multiple industries and multiple geographies. However, mm. 
some geographies have started to show some some early indications, I'll steal your word, of being hammered. Um, obviously, those areas impacted the most by uh, tourism and accommodation. Um, so some yeah. of those regional areas have been have been hit, but I think it's still too early. Yeah. It's interesting. There was a there was a front page on I don't know what paper it was saying that Alexandria was going to be the hardest hit in in Sydney because um, a high proportion of people that worked at the airport that lived at Alexandria. Yeah. So it was an interesting pinpoint. I'm not quite sure where they might have got that data from, and even if it's that reliable, what would you say to that? Well, I'm, I've just pulled up um, Erskineville, Alexandria is the SA two, mm. and it has uh, spiked up. Yeah. So you and that it belongs to the SA three called Sydney Inner City, mm-hmm. um, and and there has been an increase. Um, and, and that was in the March twenty twenty data that you're that you've seen that spike. Correct, correct. Yeah. So obviously it's lag, but equally you've still got a lot of the job mm. seeker, job keeper stuff playing havoc with the uh, the unemployment data. Although I mean, a lot of people in that area are your twenties, I imagine. Um, you know, a lot of them are students, uh, university students, um, you know, hospitality workers, a lot of them are that sort of millennials starting out in their careers as well. So I imagine it's not just the airport uh, that's getting, you know, unemployment, but I guess it's generally a lot of younger people in that area does have a lot of younger people. Would you agree with that, Ken? Uh, yes, but um, probably a call out too is a lot of us have been focused on one or two industries um, mm. and, you know, being, you know, food and accommodation. Um, it's not the biggest employee, employment sector. Um, mm. So if you look at you look at construction, I think that's the biggest. Yeah. So yeah. so even if there is a, a downward uh, turn in, in unemployment in a given sector that's small, the overall impact's not going to be as big as one of those uh, big big employers like construction. No, but it is if it's localized and you've got localized that- absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, and and a lot of these inner cities, that's a standout you know, yeah. the food and accommodation. And interestingly, in Erskineville and, and Alexandria in particular, that you've got two things there. One is definitely a proximity to the airport, which is, you know, suppose the premise that this article was using was that a lot of people work at the airport or in the airlines, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, they were stood down in March. Um, certainly, yeah. you know, I had friends at work at Qantas who were stood down in March, mm. so that would have been reflected at the very end of that quarter. But also you've got the type of stock. So Erskineville had had something like, I don't know, a 1,000 units built over the last few years. Alexandria's obviously had a lot of redevelopment in that area as well. So you've got um, a lot of people who, you know, live in – and not that they're cheap, they were cheap to live in. They might be now because rents have been falling. But, um, you know, so a lot of the young, no, no kids – you know, typical demographic that would live in a unit that is. Yeah, and and those the, those areas have evolved a lot in the last twenty years, obviously, and the mm. population densities are very high. The rental tenure is very high. Uh, a lot of the people who bought into those areas have mortgages. Mm. Uh, so so yeah, it's it's vulnerable at the moment. Yeah. So why do you think it's too early? Because you said that um, just before, and why do you think it's too early? Because the lockdowns haven't finished, and we haven't had this. The COVID situation play out, or is it a lot more? Oh, it's the lead indicator. Seven point four percent unemployment. You know, r- rising from seven point one. I'm not buying that. That's just not representative of the anecdotal stories. The the situ- the real situation, which would be mm. if if you truly look at the the data that probably should matter is hours worked. Um, there was a, a yeah. good a good article in the Fin Review. Um, 
uh, a few weeks ago, April 2029 it was, and it was why hours worked is a better jobless number. And and I'm, I agree with that. I think participation rates uh, is where it's at for me because these uh, unemployment data figures just don't seem to be representing the reality. How are they actually measured? How are they derived, these statistics? Oh, the unemployment rate, I think, is uh, a few hours worked and you're in. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you got a job. You you kind of that's what they want, right? They want to say that, you know, it, it looks good for their numbers, but that doesn't take into consideration underemployment, right? Do I, if work gave me an extra day, would I take it? Yes. So um, I'm really I'm under underemployed. I actually want more work, but I am employed. So underemployment's a much better example. But then that doesn't really explain how many how much underemployed are you, and that's why your hours worked is probably a better one, Ken. Yeah, I think so. There's a great website. I'm just trying to dig it up. It's um, it's out of the uh, University of Newcastle, um, and it's um, it's uh, the unemployment. It's an index that looks at uh, full em- employment. So it's called the Centre of Full Employment and Equity, um, and it's it's a really great resource to look at. And it does cover these things at a level that I can't hope to cover. So if you are looking at something like that versus the jobs data that you we're talking about right at the minute, which comes out of the ABS, then what value is the jobs data given the lag and given the fact that it may not be the best measurement? I think it's great always for relativity, relativity measure. Mm-hmm. So if you're comparing one area to another, even though yeah. it may, may not capture absolutely everything in regards to uh, full employment or underemployment, um, the relative uptick in unemployment uh, is, is of significant value when comparing one area to another. So is there anything that we should, you know, from that latest release that you think, oh, property owners, you know, property buyers should be thinking, oh, there's something there. There's a bit of a lead indicator of something that might be potentially more impacted by COVID. You know, I don't know. I'm just. No, no, no. I'm I'm always trying to use time series data in a lot Mm. of the models. And uh, when you look at, um, a lot of the variables that were data variables, uh, i.e. they went up and down, um, they're flattened out a lot. So uh, the one that's really left and driving a lot of these models is unemployment. As imperfect mm. as it might be, it's yeah. a significant variable that's left over in these models. So you know, if you look at it, uh, interest rates, they kind of went down and got to a level where they're hardly, they're hardly driving these big macroeconomic models for, for housing prices. So mm. that's gone. Um, a population, well, that's flatlining and going down. Um, yeah. So it is probably still going to be a variable, but in the other direction. Um, building starts, you know, these are these are, are all variables that you want to look at through time. Mm. Unemployment's a biggie in the mix, and I think it's going to get bigger and bigger. And that's the thing, JobKeeper's been extended again, um, so twice now, and um or the, the rules around it are being changed in terms of allowing more people to, to get it. So, you know, really is the unemployment data going to be useful until that's all finished, right? Because it's that's a massive stimulus to, to fudge the figures really. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, how many zombie sort of businesses that won't survive when JobKeeper finishes um, and those jobs will go, they're just kind of hanging on. So, it's it's very hard to look at unemployment at the moment because uh, it, it's not really known how deep it is, where it's there's a hot spots, um, and the problem is you're going to find it's not going to be evenly spread across the city. You're going to find that it hits certain demographics in certain areas much harder. So, 
watch this space, I guess. Yeah. Now, last month, we looked at uh, the three hottest and coldest spots across the country for both units and houses, and we're about to see if anything has changed. So let's look at the inventory levels, Kent, the cold spots, and yeah, where so gonna, things are warming up. Yeah, we've got a few cold spots, uh, a few warm spots or hot spots as well. Um, mm-hmm. Focusing on it, the standout really is the, we, we split, um, a lot of the data gets split, or geographies get split into the capital city and the rest of the state. So if yeah. you look at a lot of the capital cities data, you look at you know, Greater Sydney and then rest of New South Wales, for example. <laughs> One of the standout things, uh, even though I'm not a big fan of, of medians, as you know, the standout, though, when you do look across these capital city metrics is a significant uptick in the rest of state. So if you're looking outside of, of Sydney, the rest of New South Wales has had a significant change in terms of pricing, same with rest of Victoria, etc. So the rest, you know, the rest of, i.e. the, the regional, regional areas, mm-hmm. seems to be where the action is, uh, in, in, certainly in the housing markets. Wow, interesting. Yeah. When you say that, you mean you're saying the supply in those areas is going up? No, or? I'm just using the median as a uh, as a lead indicator. I don't trust median as a, a change in value, but it's a, an interesting statistic to drill into. So what I look at is the, the aggregate of, of sale prices uh, grouped by Greater Sydney, rest of New South Wales, et cetera, i.e. the capital city. Uh, and then I look at the median that was, uh, that was for the last 12 months up until end of July and I compare that median to the same period a year ago Mm. and what I found is the rest of New South Wales that's ticked up by eight percent whereas Greater Sydney had changed by five percent so the the delta is really interesting Um, Greater Melbourne was a two percent change the rest of Victoria was eight eight percent so it's it's fascinating to see the variance Mm. um, which tells me that there's a lot of activity and yeah, there's a lot of anecdotal stories out there saying people are, uh, you know, are looking to the, the out-of-town locations and the regions in greater numbers. And we've definitely, we've had a couple of um, episodes on that where we've been interviewing demographers and, um, you know, futurists around that, you know, the mindset change, you know, and also the enabling of that due to the different ways that we're working. And we've proven that working from home, you know, it's quite viable for many people. So that's interesting to see that that's, even now so that's even so july we're talking yeah so it's very relevant in terms of how that's been well how many months of um covid have we been dealing with four there's four months worth of covid data in there right well yeah so i think things started to change a lot around january february so um you know it's it's diluted by the fact that it's a 12 month rolling average Mm. um and i think it's an early indication of what's to come very interesting I think it was starting to happen potentially when you say January because the Sydney market uh, and Melbourne were getting extremely hot again after the election last year. Like we're talking potentially uh, around 15%. Would you agree, Veronica, since around after the election? Like it would bounce back extremely fast. I think the um, official, I think CoreLogic said something like 12% up tick in yeah. Sydney median house price in the nine months following the election or something like that. So it's, yeah, significant. Mm. And we saw it even in, and in a lot of the sort of first home buyer markets that are around the sort of lifestyle suburbs, say in the inner west where you are, Veronica, um, the beaches, you know, parts of the east, um, 
were, were probably more than that from from what I saw. And so people were getting quite frustrated. A lot of first-time buyers were getting pushed out. And it yeah. was kind of the same as 2016, I felt, like where, you know, a lot of young couples were saying, well, I can't get what I want in Sydney anymore. I can't buy on the beaches. I don't. Um, and we're getting clients looking down towards Cronulla and, uh, you know, Oyster Bay, Como, those areas. Um, and then I think Como, uh, COVID's happened and it's really allowed people to, to really kind of follow that. So I think it was already starting to happen mm. uh, where people were thinking about giving up on those inner ring sort of areas. Um, and I think COVID just kind of pushed them further down that path. Chris, yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Spoken over the no. top. Did you hear the headline from Atlassian? Um, they, oh, yeah. Every one of their employees is invited to work from home if they like. Yeah. We actually try to get uh, Atlassian, um, Mr. Price, on. Uh, he's way too busy. So, but it's uh, fascinating, isn't it? I mean, where would you yeah. prefer to live? Yeah. Well, that's it, and, and that's Atlassian. A uh, uh, funny because they've just announced a one billion dollar, maybe even more one billion. <laughs> The biggest, tallest timber tower, yeah, sustainable design building in the southern southern hemisphere, um, around Central Station. So uh, it's kind of diff- two different worlds, right? You're announcing, you know, a, a one billion dollar mm-hmm. development, but then you're telling everyone they've got to work from home forever. So uh, I thought that was quite funny. <laughs> or did they tell them they had to work from home forever, or they could if they wanted? Because I think this wanted, is, yeah. yeah, I think this is the interesting thing that there's mm, it becoming an awareness that oh, I like working from home, but not all the time, you know. Or, or as we when we interviewed, or in fact, we haven't released this episode yet, but we've got one coming up with Simon Kustemaker, who's a demographer with the um, Bernard Saltz um, group there, the demographic group. Is that what they're called? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he was talking about this, um, the idea that certainly when you're in your career trajectory, you you can't afford to work from home all the time, you know. So there's there's going to be the pendulum's going to swing back into the middle and so hence probably the billion-dollar building. But, um, but it is interesting that this whole idea about breaking down the working week, maybe commuting two or three days, um, means that that opens up possibilities for moving outside the metropolitan area. Um, and it's just interesting to see that that's already showing in, in median, you know, that, that relativity, as you say, the, the usefulness of median data is showing that that's, that's starting to take effect and there's competition presumably um, amongst new buyers or new entrants into those uh, rest of New South Wales and rest of Victoria markets that are, you know, having an, a market impact on prices already. Exactly. It's funny you say around Atlassian because I've actually got quite a lot of clients at Atlassian and um, a lot of them aren't. Uh, born in Australia, a lot of them are Spanish, English, Belgium, French, um, and they've come to work for Alassian because they've offered them, you know, uh, a, a job and, you know, a lifestyle to move to Sydney. And a lot of them actually want to live kind of around you, uh, Veronica, around Newtown, Erskineville. Don't blame um, them. <laughs> yeah, and because they, they, you know, they like that sort of inner city vibe. They moved to Australia for that that buzz um mm. uh, you know and a few of them are maybe a little bit older and they say that like 30s 40s etc but um they have got a young workforce and they are potentially looking for those family homes you know if but uh, it's interesting so a lot of those employees would prefer probably just to commute because they live around the city anyway mm. they can go to they can socialize they can have their coffees and um they've got the full setup and that's 17 screens at, you know at the office sort of thing so um I think the commute by choice market is 
is not going to go go away. And there's lots of people who are, would much prefer to commute because it's only 20 minutes rather than just sit in their office at home and be by themselves, you know. So um, it's very so interesting to watch this space. Let's look at um, the top uh, areas or the hottest spots. And we've got to be careful using the word hotspots because we're not using it in the same context. <laughs> it's been misused and abused across the way. Across the, yeah, we can the change way. the name. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should. Well, uh, for next episode, we'll have to think about changing a name. Yeah. I love the cold spots. That's great. But um, so, the what are the top areas that are that are where we're seeing very low inventory, coupled with um, low vacancy rates? Yeah, um, we've got we've listed down four: um, Bulleye Mayfield up in Newcastle, Bulleye mm-hmm. down north of Wollongong, Ballarat. Uh, and Barara, which is you know the the representative um, suburb out of the Sydney area, so they're our our focus areas. Probably the big call out there is um, Barara is exposed to a, a fair bit of um, the rental market, which is just slightly down the road. So there's a lot of rental properties in and around Asquith and whatnot that yeah. do compete there. However, um, the suburb itself. Uh, of Barrow, which we'll go into, um, it does have a very, very low proportion of rental property. So that's why it's in. Um, which so is interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it's fascinating there. Um, so Bulleye's the first one, not a lot happening, uh, not in terms of you know, available listings. So it's very scarce. Um, there's uh, the, the typical asking price, listing price medians around 1.2 million, give or take. Yeah. Um, and inventory levels are all below the two mark, so it's as tight, very tightly held. Um, summarising, it's not just Bulleye as well, is it? It's Thoreau, Ostermere, Stanford, um, uh, oh, Taraji, I think is the yeah. right way to pronounce it. Uh, yeah, so all those sort of pockets. We, I mean, Garbra. our business have got three clients. We just have one buy in Thoreau. We've got three clients trying to buy in that area, and I think at the moment there's eight properties on the market that are houses <laughs> that. Um, and if you take out, there's a couple that are four mil and three mil, which, you know, are, are more the premium end of the kind of the uh, bell curve. Yeah. But they're not really, they're, they're rare, rare listings. So if you take them out um, and then you take out some of the really cheap ends of the market, which you don't want to buy, there's like literally a couple of properties and yeah. um, it's extremely tight in that sort of north kind of thorough north part of um you know, North Wollongong. Yeah. Well, and, and just to put into context, what you've got there is a, a sort of a fairly short strip of coastal area um, where you're north of Wollongong, so you're between Wollongong and Sydney. It's, you know, you on a good day, you could drive to Sydney in an hour uh, and it's got a train line. Yeah, so life's got lifestyle accessibility, and also you've got two sort of job centres, i.e. Wollongong and Sydney. So, yeah. um, you know, that's probably uh it's very interesting that it's top the list really but the next one but there's two others that sort of relate to that proximity to a city um and offering that lifestyle because Ballarat and Barara I mean Ballarat obviously around about just over an hour's train ride from Melbourne I understand and um and Barara obviously is it's a very northern it's probably the northernmost suburb of Sydney potentially um it's very bushy it's very suburban but like you say Kent it's in there because there's very little in by way of rental in that space so highly owner occupied um does have um a train 
as well. I think that train, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So all three of those have a train. All three have the ability to commute to a major city and, you know, an hour or thereabouts and all three offer um, lifestyle. Yeah, I've always been a fan of Barara and down at Barara Waters. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Very pretty. The well, Mayfield, we though, love it too. Um, I mean, just on Barara, sort of, uh, you know, Cohen, um, et cetera, those areas, I mean, because it's all surrounded by national parks, um, it's there's really no more land left, right? Mm. So from a supply mm. point of view, there's no more houses getting built in Barara or Barara Heights or nothing around there because it's national parks. And so, you know, there's potentially a lot of, um, you know, darker properties around there potentially as well. So you've got to be careful with that. But then there's lots of, we had a couple of clients buy last year that properties that are actually backing onto the national park. Um mm which are with the north side as well. So, you know, great light. But then also when you look out the back door, you're looking into bushland. So that's another reason why those areas are potentially good to invest. Um, but I think schooling is obviously a part of it as well to, to think through. So Mayfield is the next one, I believe. Is that right, Ken? It is. Mayfield. Um, it's a big suburb. Um, so we've gone from a very small suburb in Barara to, to Mayfield. So, yeah, Mayfield's a monster of a suburb. And then you add on to that, you've got Mayfield East and Mayfield West as two other adjacent suburbs that get thrown in the mix but we're just focusing on Mayfield um, so it's it's relatively affordable uh, at a median of oh, the asking price at the moment is around 575,000 um, very tight inventory levels obviously less than one month so stuff comes on and it's bouncing off in typically less than 30 days so tight very tight now you're a Nova Castrian, so um, <laughs> you know you're. You, there's always going to be a Newcastle suburb that creeps into this list, doesn't it? I don't show my bias. Would but, you have lived in Mayfield uh, 15 years ago if someone paid you? What's interesting about New, <laughs> What's interesting about Newcastle is the regentrification um, of a lot of the suburbs. Is, is happening by Sydney siders coming through. Don't carry any bias or grudge from what it was 20 years ago. Yeah. And that's so true because Mayfield, uh, I grew up in Newcastle and uh, Mayfield was a, was a rough place, right? Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, and, and like, you know, you had around the TAFE, um, all that sort of, Area, there's a bit of a late night scene sort of going on there, and um, but yeah, so you, was so was Newtown, <laughs> so yeah, was that's exactly right. And in fact, and when you look at the sort of um types of houses in Mayfield, you can see that those older style houses that exactly that right for gentrification, they've got lots of character, and yeah, I mean, god, Balmain was a working class suburb, and um, you know full of working workers' cottages yeah. to, the, to that very point. And all of a sudden, you know, in the sort of 80s and 90s, a workers' cottage became <laughs> something to brag about. <laughs> I bought a workers' cottage. <laughs> oh, <Oh-ho. laughs> yeah. I think what's, what's got Mayfield is um, those homes, which Veronica's alluded to, but then it's also those homes are really access to the city, access to the beaches, um, and the city of Newcastle is gentrifying. They're doing a good job, would you say, Kent, in terms oh, of the light rail and just reviving the city. The city was a ghost town when I grew up. Everyone would go to the the three shopping centres, Charlestown or Katara. I can't even remember if there was a third. Um, you know, and the, but the city has got a bit of a life back. A lot of the, you know, the millennials are starting the bars and the cafes and kind of reviving the city. And um, Mayfield's like, you know, 10 minutes to the city and, 
10 minutes to the beach. It's so. so close. It's so, you know, it's, it, it, literally you could walk to the city. No, no big problem. But um, I'm finding myself uh, explaining what's happening to the city in and around Newcastle and the CBD area to a lot of people who haven't been here for 20 or 30 years. Mm. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of having to, to become a cheerleader saying, come and look at the place and make your mind up. It is stunning. Mm. <laughs> the mayor of Newcastle. Can't <laughs> so let's look, at, let's look at our cold spots. Let's, let's get you know off the excited bandwagon yeah. about gentrification. Yeah, let's okay. look at the misery. I've the misery I've of it. The flag enough. All right. So um, the first one here. I mean, I've got Austral and a lot of these house and, and land areas um, obviously dominate my my data. Mm. One thing I wanted to focus on specifically um, is the, the block sizes in these areas. Oh, and, yes. You know, uh, and one thing I remember back in my days in mortgage insurance is the biggest claims we paid were often these houses on you know, two to 300 square metres. Really? Uh, very small blocks, big, big claims, and often two or three claims in the same street. Really? And I can't let go of that. I just can't. <laughs> yeah. And the data's bubbling up these same properties again, and I'm, you know, I'm going fetal. So mm. I think that's that's a that, that's a standout. And you know, you've got a, a lot of properties coming on. However, um, they do get into the data, but the reality is that they're blocks of dirt um, with a rendered image of a property then listed. So they, they get counted as a house, but in reality, the holding costs are very, very low. So it's not the same as the secondary housing market data that's widely used in other markets. So uh, my point really is Australia probably, and me uh, inclusive, we need to focus on secondary housing market data and, and probably focus less on new stock because there's lots of white papers out there talking about the problems with measuring new stock. The problem with not measuring it, though, is the reality is that there's massive supply and ongoing supply, yeah. and that is an issue for people, particularly if they're picking up every single government grant that's going at the moment. Um, they can still end up with negative equity on day one. Oh, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, you only have to look look through and find a property that's been listed for a long time that's not owned by the developer. Mm. And then you know, your heart bleeds for that family trying to get out. Yeah, yeah. So Austral's around the Bradgerys Creek Airport. It's, you know, that will come in the next decade. Um, and uh, you think, oh, okay, it's a good place to invest right near this new airport because that's lots of people work at the airport apparently. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it's interesting when you look at Austral, um, you know, it's just if you look to the, uh, the east of it, um, you've got all new house and land packages that were kind of built in the last five years, Edmondson Park, Hoxton, um, et cetera. And you've got, they've all kind of on those small blocks which you talk about. Um, but then if you go to Austral, it's all the farmers, or it's not really farmers, they're more like, you know, acreages and big house, you know, houses on big blocks. They're all trying to sell their houses for, you know, three to five million um, mm. because development approval is you can put 20 houses on them. Um and so it's just interesting, you know, if anyone wants to kind of figure out why these house and land packages don't work, well, what, how do the people in the West Hoxton feel when they look over their back fence or their, and there's all these sort of bigger blocks that are going to get cut up into small house and land packages in the next 10 years? How is their house going to compete with all these new house and land packages? And that's just, a, it's quite simple to think about it like that, but I feel like that really helps people understand 
how supply is going to come and how your house isn't going to be able to differentiate itself or, or be better than what's to come. Yeah. Yeah. Landscape, it can only do so much. So <laughs> Ripley Ding Logan. Okay. Yeah. We know that that's how that was, that featured on the list last month. It did. Um, uh, yeah, with a Logan Reserve in there, but it's the same scenario, right? Yeah. It's in a different spot. Okay, we're not going to go and labour this point. I think we've made the point, but it's it's pretty miserable, isn't it? And then well, there's... I want to just just throw one point in there. Um, I actually just did a quick look on real estate then, and I do do use domain as well um, <laughs> to check on the like the suburbs, like the listings basically across Brisbane. And as I zoomed, put the suburb in, then I zoomed out. You know, lots of areas would have fifty, a hundred plus. And then when you go to that southwest corridor, there's over a thousand plus listings. So yeah. across the whole of Brisbane, everyone's like 50, 100, maybe a couple of hundred. And then this one little pocket's got over a thousand. So, Jeez. you know, just looking at is it easier to buy a property when there's over a thousand listings in that area? Mm. Yes. Is that yeah. a good, is, is it that easy a good to buy? sell? <laughs> exactly. No. <laughs> yeah. And Veronica's got a great line where she says, you know, it's easy to buy, hard to sell. So either deal with the pain today and actually you know, spend a lot of time trying to buy a good property, which is tough. Mm. And then it's easy to sell it, you know, 10 years later when you want to sell because you've done the hard yards. Whereas do you want to do the pain today or tomorrow? So I think that's just a really big warning sign when you look at listings um, in that sort of pocket. Avoid. Now, Ken, what impact can the percentage of fully owned properties make? Well, um, one of the the conundrums or challenges we have is the percentage of fully owned represents the people who are in the house at the time of the census. So it doesn't necessarily tell us um, what the percentage owned of those rental properties. So typically we see it split up We say, you know, here is the percentage that are owned with a mortgage, here's Mm. a percentage owned outright, and here is a percentage rent rented or rental tenure. But if if we pull out the data, which is, you know, the third of properties out there that are rentals, how many of those rent, rental properties have a mortgage and don't have a mortgage? Mm. And if you look at some of these old money suburbs, eastern suburbs as a classic yeah. example, um, mm. I know families that own five or six units outright that have, they've owned them for 30 years, 40 years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, even though the, the, the vacancy rates might be a bit high, they don't care. You no. know, it, it doesn't matter. 50000 to buy an apartment in Bondi and you know, 1990, you know, so uh, it's not going to be hard to pay that one off, is it? And that is and that is interesting because I different data, but, um, you know, we often talk sort of in property investment circles, we talk about, you know, don't look at buying an investor or a property in an area where it's got more than a third or more than 30% is uh, investor owned, right? That's sort of the 70, 30 sort of magic rule, right? Yeah. And but then you look at Potts Point, um, and I know Elizabeth Bay and units, we're sort of segueing here a bit into units, but you look at Potts Point, Elizabeth Bay, um, there's something like 60 to 70% uh, rental, yeah. yeah. But but yes, exactly right. But if and but then that's also been the one pocket of Sydney that's had the highest capital growth over the last 30 years. So so then you go, well, how does that work? You've got two completely opposing bits of um, data. But then like what you say, that that assumption around the 70 30 percent rule on on um inve- uh, sorry investors versus uh, owner occupiers is that investors all have mortgages isn't it yeah i think the key is you know just understanding the data you're looking at and scratching the surface a little bit um and it takes time to get a feel for it all but yeah i think that's the key is 
you, you know, yes, it might be, you know, that whole SA3 region of inner Sydney or the eastern suburbs north might be up around the 60 or 65% rental tenure, but mm. there's a massive proportion of that that's just fully owned or owned with a very, very small mm. mortgage. And we saw that, we've seen that in terms of um, shopping strips. So, you know, not residential property here, but we've seen it where a lot of uh, local shopping strips, and Balmain's a good example, and I think sort of Paddington and places like that, where the shops have owned and owned outright often by sort of older families that have been around the area. A lot of Italians, you know, and Greeks have liked to buy up shop fronts. And they then say, well, if I can't get $3,000 a week rent for this shop front, I'm not going to I'm not going to lease it. So therefore, yeah. a lot of these shopping strips were having a lot of vacant, vacant uh, shops. And the council was starting to try to, to have put in an incentive or disincentive to leaving it vacant because obviously it's not good for business all around. But it's it's that type of shopkeeper or that type, sorry, that type of landlord who can afford to just go, no, I'm not going to rent it out. I'm just going to let it sit there, Yeah, you know. So, yeah, it does make a big difference, doesn't it? It does. It does. To that. So, so what, for our listeners, that the you know, it's an easy thing to find out. Where's the best way to find it out? Is it the census, Kent? I mean, where do you find it out from? Well, I grab it from the census and then try and display it in a in a better fashion on my website. Yeah. I'll get a big plug in for suburbtrends.com. Suburb Trends, yes, favorite property website. Um, the you know, but with the owner occupier rate, it's really good for you know. A client actually asked me this week. He said. Um, you know, he's thinking about buying up the beaches and he's like, well, you know, it's got 60% sort of owner-occupier rate. Is it a good thing? And I was like, well, in that scenario, there's probably a lot of people who've got holiday homes um, in the area. So that's probably, you know, not getting on the rental market. So that's probably skewing your numbers. But generally speaking, it's a good number to look at because that shows the owner-occupier market's driving that market rather mm. than investor market, yeah. um, which the investor market always looks at, well, what's the rent? Um, what's my depreciation and, you know, what's interest rates and should I invest or shouldn't I? So it comes in and out. It's like a light switch. And so if that market drives your property price, you've got to be careful the investor market doesn't vanish like it has recently. Um, Mm. But the other big thing which the doomsday has never um, kind of acknowledged is the amount, percentage of properties in a suburb that are paid off, that have no debt, that are unencumbered. And those people are not financially stressed at all. Um, they've got no mortgage. Um, they might be, even if they lose their job, they haven't got a mortgage to pay. So, uh, yeah, they, they might live off savings or they might have, re, you know, et cetera. So, mm. or if you've got a big portion of the properties in an area paid off, that's another thing. That's another sort of stress test or, a, yep. um, you know, on the market. So those are two things you should always be looking at. Well, that's Absolutely. my go-to. I use the, the tenure fully owned percentage a lot in the, in the machine learning models. And typically what you can apply is an assumption that if those families also own a number of rental properties in the suburb or in the region, uh, which, mm. is, which is common, um, then that same percentage may well likely apply to those um, rental properties that they, they own. So let's move into the unit data. What are our sort of top three and bottom three yeah. in that space? Should we continue with the tops? Let's talk about the tops and then let's go to the bottom. Well, we've got Elizabeth Bay. Mm. And now that's been fairly solid for at least 12 months in terms of low inventory levels. Yeah. Um, yes, it's got a high rental tenure, but we've just covered that off. Um, yeah. um, so, and you know, pretty solid uh, income level. You know, the, the typical uh, average weekly income is up around the 2K mark. So it's a it's got a lot of solid uh, attributes to it. 
The second mm. one we've got on the list is Newport. And I think, Chris, you've got a lot to say about Newport. Chris, did you put this on the list, Chris? Uh, I did, yeah. I'm just, uh, <laughs> confirmation bias. I'm trying to you know, push up the prices of property in the area by like a Renee Rivkin moment. Um, but, uh, I mean, Elizabeth Bay, for example, I think the reason you're never going to see lots of stock listings there is because of when you've got a good investment, whether it's shares or property, um, and it's performed well for you and you ha- you're not worried about it not performing well in the long term, you don't get as fearful, right? So if you own a good mm-hmm. company and you it, you know it's a good company and you know it's going to survive any downturn because it's structurally it's sound um, and it's got all the, the ingredients right to succeed long term, then you don't rush to sell. And your neighbours aren't selling as well, so there's not this fear going around the area. And I think Elizabeth Bay in Potts Point is an example of an area where the unit market's not going to freak out, you know, because everyone's going to be like, well, they're not building any more quality stuff here. Um, there's only so many apartments and uh, in 10 years' time, it'll still be an amazing place to live. So that, even though you see unit listings across the city are rising, I just don't think those are the sort of areas that you'll see problems. Yeah, um, and they've also you've got the style of apartment yeah. too. You've got a lot of sort of Spanish mission style, a lot about deco. Um, you've got you, uh, the, the most recent blocks really were built in the 70s or there might be some redevelopments of a few old hotels, you know what I mean? So it, mm. it's... It's there's no there's very little in the way of new development at all. The same in Newport, you know, you were saying there. I mean, I was literally down there on the weekend, um, and there was one little apartment that was overlooking the beach that came on, and I was like, oh, that looks quite a nice little property, and like it went like in a day. Um, <laughs> you know, there's there's no development going on in that sort of peninsula for new units. There's one apparently happening that all the agents are trying to flog, uh, um, which, uh, you know, they, it's interesting, all the agents have got it on their front doors, like they're trying to push this new development because they get a big commission on it. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's just no new stock coming on. And secondly, there's lots of people, a lot of houses up here aren't suitable for downsizers. There's stairs mm-hmm. uh, and there's maintenance, um, et cetera. So a lot of people who have got these bigger houses that are tough to keep, up to scratch and costly, um, but they don't want to leave the area. They don't want to leave the lifestyle and their friends in the area. So um, you'll find that they'll gobble up any nice units pretty quick and there's not that many. So Good point. point. I've got friends and family who often say, yeah, we're looking to retire. We just want to move down to the the beaches in a unit. Um, So, you know, they might own a house up and around, you know, um, Belrose or wherever northern beaches areas and and yeah they look to the unit as their retirement location yeah and it's not just the beaches it's um yeah it's not just like the peninsula bit it's narrabeen parts of dy uh you know all along the strip fairlight manly and then all the way around to where you are veronica in the in the inner west um you know people who want more of that city life get the ferry around the city so um yeah, lots of downsizes. Well, that's it. They're free of kids and, and by then and they're like, right, well, I want to go spend, I want to go to the opera and I want to go to the theatre and, you know, that that proximity to the city suddenly becomes, you know, very real. Um, I actually noticed in the in the hot list, there's uh, on the Suburb Trends website, they you know, can look at the top 40. Uh, six out of the top 10 are beachside. Is that a coincidence or perhaps the, with all this coastal erosion on the front page of the papers, um, maybe that would change quickly now? <laughs> uh, look, I, the data just it, it speaks for itself. So, you know, we base it predominantly on 
inventory levels. So if people are buying in the uh, in those suburbs and demand outstrips supply, um, mm. it'll show up regardless. And uh, it's also how tightly held. So it's it, inventory yeah. isn't just purely about supply and or it's supply and demand, of course. But it's it's not purely about where well, you've got enough demand to buy whatever's coming on the market. It's the fact that people aren't motivated to sell. They don't need to sell. They don't want to sell. Yeah, and I, I, yeah. I think equally, there's not an abundance of, of, of building going on in a lot of those locations. Um, so it's a you know, constraint of supply. Although the other area on your list was Rose Bay Bondi, um, and Bondi has had fair amount of construction in recent years. It's expensive. is um, just a fat, fascinating uh, spot, though. I think you mentioned earlier on a lot of your friends at Atlassian um, uh, you know, like to live in these spots. So you know, I think a lot of people who move to Australia uh, love to drill down on Bondi. Um, I'm going to throw in a plug for a friend of mine called Anna at Bondi. She manages... Uh, short long-term rentals and Airbnb, and she's given me a really terrific insight into the suburb of Bondi. And she had a number of Airbnb properties, and what they instantly did is just flick a few of them over to short and longer-term uh, uh, rental tenure. Rental. Um, but equally, some of the Airbnb uh, owners simply said, no, we'll, we'll hold on, not a problem. And what happened was a lot of people who were working from home, they're blocked out of their office, oh, just, yeah. went, just went and rented a property. Yeah. One, of the, one of the units. So um, she didn't miss a beat with, with what's happened because it's a rock-solid suburb. And that's interesting that you say that, you know, those owners didn't feel the pressure to sell. They're not panicking. They're just going, oh, it's right, we'll wait it out um, or we'll pivot, you know. Um, it's quite interesting, isn't it? What about our bottom three areas, though, because I think a bit of a different story and one of those I think potentially is affected by Airbnb. Yeah, well, we've we've got a, a, a few of these um locations keep on coming back at us uh, month mm. by month but sydney olympic park is one that broader region of uh, of auburn being the sa3 um has uh, inventory levels you know getting close to that eight month eight month mark and and climbing mm. so it's not just the suburb but the you know the other markets that are yeah. immediately around it the other suburbs around it are also in oversupply so um, so we've got Sydney Olympic Park, um, your list price median 700000 So it's it's not cheap, um, yet you still have you know, inventory levels uh, up around, you know, for that particular suburb, uh, 18 months. Um, so it's a, it's a big count. Um, oh, imagine trying to, you know, offload something quickly there. Be, oh, awful. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. stats here as well, uh, Kent. You said 67% of the properties are rental. So whenever it's rental, you're like, well, that's an investor, you know, that yes. on the other head, like, so 70%, let's just call it, of the properties are owned by investors. So And they're brand so, new, relatively. Yeah, so yeah. they've only owned them for a very short period of time. And the second leads into that, Veronica, which is 5% of the properties are fully owned. And they're probably mm. owned by developers, to be honest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so that means pretty much all of the properties have got debt on them. Now, mm. um, if they've got debt on them, they've all been recently built, most likely they've got a lot of debt on them because, you know, they're bought by investors who it's good to have a lot of debt on them if you're an investor because of tax deduction. Um, or if you're a first-time buyer, you haven't got much cash um, and so you're getting a 90% loan or an 80% loan. Um, not many first-time buyers have more than that little deposit. So 70% of the properties are owned by investors. I'd say, uh, I think that's probably more than that. Um, and very, very, all of them have basically got debt on them and lots of debt on them. So mm. it's a very um, confronting when you look at those two statistics and compare that to a 
you know, a premium suburb that maybe 30, 40% are fully owned um, and 20% to 30% are rented. Um, it's completely other world. And you've got a lot of competition. So, you know, those adjacent suburbs, the overall region, SA3 region has at, mm. at least 45% of the properties are rented. Are rented. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough space. Um, the second one we had was Melbourne, Melbourne City. Um, I think we covered that last month, so we don't need to dwell too much on that. But, you know, we know the story that there's, you know, an abundance of Airbnb properties. We've got an abundance of properties uh, that were uh, leased to, to international students that aren't being leased. Yeah. We've got massive supply, uh, a lot of new stock. Um, so a, a lot of uh, headwind. Mm. What I love about going to Melbourne is I'll fly in, I'll get the, sometimes I'll get a car, but sometimes I'll get the bus, you know, the um, sky bus, whatever it is. Yep. And um, you go over the Balti Bridge and look to the left and you've got this amazing sort of vista of the city. And um, every time I go to Melbourne, there's a new tower. Like there's, and there's not just one tower, there's three or four going up in the background and, um, you know, there's so much development that's still happening today. I mean, it's been cut back for the next six weeks, but generally speaking, the, there's not. It's not like there's, they're not building any more apartments for anytime soon. There's still thousands and thousands that are, are still getting built today down there. So, and yet the last data I looked at, sixty six percent of them, um, in the last decade, on sold at a loss oh, or yeah, at yeah. the same price that they were purchased yeah. for. So, which is a, it's a real loss, you know. And so it's like there's evidence to say don't buy it and yet there's still being built so people are still buying them you know so or have been maybe maybe uh maybe that's going to well, be a bit knows, less if we open up the gates and let all of hong kong in mm. they they well, can buy it they can yeah, yeah. <laughs> well then no uh, and they'll go and buy a house near there um but i mean it's like a client i spoke to a couple of weeks he was so sure that he wanted to buy this place in docklands um because he wanted to live in this building and uh, i think i might have said this story before to our listeners mm. but um you know, and it was a very confronting conversation and it, he kind of got there and um, and then I ch- followed him up on LinkedIn a couple of weeks later and he said, yeah, no, I took the advice. I'm renting in that building that I wanted to buy and we're going to put our money elsewhere. And, like, for me, that's exactly the best outcome. You know, if you, really, if you want to live in Melbourne City, go rent. There's no shortage. Enjoy it. When you get over that building, if it's got problems, just go rent a different building. Um, you're not yeah. going to have that problem renting in melbourne cbd yeah rank best <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and then the uh the third one the list north ride north same ride. story yeah same story same thing um but look looking at the at the list of you know the 10 coldest spots so on your website you know obviously we see the usual suspects and we're just seeing it there again high density newly developed areas holiday units also dominate which we haven't because they didn't make the top three or the bottom three but um you know, there was a few suburbs there on the Whit Sundays, for instance. Uh, poor old Darwin, that was in the top ten, uh, thrown in for good measure. And um, has it? I know it's been a month since, only been a month, I should say, since we last looked at this. Has there been any any noticeable change in that time? Um, not not a lot um, at, at all. Uh, it's been uh, you know I had, the reason why one of the reasons what motivated me to expand the list is so we can talk about some different suburbs. So rather than just <laughs> rather, boring every yeah. week, so, every month. Same so problem. now we can just kind of pick pick over the pick over the forty. Um, so um, what I will do for next uh, for the next month um, is target some of those new entrants. Yeah. 
So, which will be interesting. So, we, you know, we want to sort of get greater understanding through all of this. And obviously, these, the leading indicators, as we've mentioned before, and as we explained in our last Suburb Trends uh, episode, which was our first one, which was July 2020, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that because that will, we explained the methodology, which just in a nutshell was really looking at leading indicators for price movement and obviously vacancy rates coupled with, um, the uh, inventory. the inventory levels. Thank you. And you you created a uh, you went away from that and created a market risk matrix, which is a lovely once again available on your website. It's a great visual representation of, of risk. It's and um, a place called Barclay floated and and I say floated because it looks like bubbles um, floated to the top of the chart for both units and houses. I had a look at where Barclay is on the map. It's a local government area in uh, Northern Territory. So. Um, I'm not sure a lot of our listeners are from the Territory, um, but I have to say it's a pretty sad story for anyone owning anything in Barclay based on based on that data that you've um, you've put together. <laughs> well, the way, the way that page has been designed is if you, your inventory appears on the X-axis and what mm. you can do is then look at the same metric of inventory but then compare it to one other dimension of data. So the mm. first one being vacancy rates and then, and then you scroll down the page and in that same position on the x-axis will be that SA3 location, but then you can compare it to the to the change in inventory, the you know the twelve month trend change. Uh, then the next one down, you're looking at it uh, inventory versus unemployment rate, and the last one is the median price change. So um, you can get a, a four different dimensions on inventory levels by looking down those matrices. It's really interesting. So I encourage everybody to go to suburbtrends.com.au. There's a tab there of market. Oh, actually, on the front, the homepage is all these boxes there you can click on. It's market risk is the box, right? Yeah. Or risk, risk what's it called? Uh, risk, market, I think I've called it, I've called it risk quadrants. That's it, risk quadrants. So uh, it's, yeah, for anyone who's a bit of a, a little bit of a nerd who loves this stuff, you'll love, you'll love this. Um, each month we discuss something that doesn't fit the pattern. So uh, what's this month's anomaly, Ken? I've got two data anomalies. We did mention them both. I think the first is the, you know, the new stock versus the secondary market and the, mm. and the conundrum we have counting uh, blocks of dirt as houses. Um, mm. And uh, you know, the answer to that um, uh, may not be at my fingertips right now, but in, in certainly in, in places like Poland uh, and the US, um, they've, uh, they've identified it as the same problem. Uh, a great white paper I, I read recently uh, on that uh, identified that there's information asymmet- asymmetric information when it comes to new property development, um, which was which was identified as causing problems in the way they were reporting housing statistics in Poland. So I'd agree with that. There's some some yeah. problems. Um, so that that's the first one. Uh, the second one was we covered it off was you know the percentage rental tenure. We need to kind of break that down or appreciate that, you know, it might be 62% rental tenure in, in some of these eastern suburb suburbs, uh, but we don't necessarily know what percentage of those yeah. are owned outright. So yeah. um, I think it's just understanding the data a little bit better. And the older the suburb uh, and the better the suburb has performed, it would mean that the more properties that are probably paid off, you know, because a lot of properties were bought for cheap prices a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and so that more likely people have held on to them because of big capital gains. Like if you bought an apartment, say in Bondi as an example, and you bought it for 100 and now it's worth 800, 
you don't want to sell that property because you don't want to give, you know, 100 to 150 grand of capital gains tax to the government. So you just hold on to just it. Hold. Yeah. And also you don't have the pressures to sell that somebody else might have. Exactly. Because it's positively cash flow. It's, you know, you always know that it's going to perform okay. And um, because of the suburb dynamics. Yeah, it's so interesting because I've never really been able to explain that. Um, and I know I know it to be true, but I've never been able to explain it to clients. I've often just pointed it out as an anomaly, but now that's sort of given us some, some yeah. more insight into why that is an anomaly, and I think that's fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. So this has been a great snapshot, and we're looking forward to coming back with next month's report. Chris, what's been your greatest takeaway from this discussion? Uh, I think when I get Kent's list, um, I like to do a little bit of digging and um, I did it this time and it's just, you know, looking at the top three and thinking why is that the top three or the top 40, just looking at the list of the suburbs and um, and the same on the bottom and just digging a bit deeper. And, yes, it just keeps on confirming what I believe and what I know, but it's still good to keep on seeing the data and, and keep on fact-checking because, you know, when you need to keep – digging to, to just always make sure you're doing the right thing. Yeah, for me, you know, obviously it just reaffirms there's no such thing as one Australian property market. Also, just the fact that you've, you've pointed out, Kent, some of those um, data anomalies in the sense that there's a problem in the data because of all the new stock skewing the total reporting in a way. And, and, and that goes in terms of reporting it overly negatively as well because you know you martin north for argument's sake who um you know we've um we've interviewed and and you know he's very concerned about the high level of um, new development and he's been well publicized as saying that potentially or that the australian property market back to back to talking about one homogenous market which doesn't really exist but he's over he's overvalued by 40 percent and a big part of that is because of all this new stuff um in there so that for me, but it also just reaffirms exactly it is what we know, but it's explaining what we know. So, you know, we've got to be careful about yeah. confirmation bias, but, you know, that, that that scarcity and established areas, you know, I think it just it rams at home um, that we can look at the patterns in the cold spots and it's new, 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 oversupply, oversupply, oversupply. And then, you know, you're looking at what are the common denominators in those hotter areas. It's scarcity. It's lack of supply. It's it's not, it's not just scarcity, but scarcity of the type of property. It's, it's um, you know, established. It's a, it's a also a diversity of the ownership um, and the types of people and the, and the financial positions of those that own in that area. So I think that's been another fabulous discussion. Can't wait till September's. What's going to be the focus for next month, Ken? I think we'll, we'll follow the same, uh, same thing, but we'll focus specifically on the new entrance into the top 40 lists. Okay, let's do that. And I think we should talk about a bit of uh, mortgage data and lending data because I think it's very interesting to um, start to unpack some of the behavioural trends that COVID's created there. I think that's fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you again, Kent. We'll see you next month. Thank you. Thank you, Kent. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team would love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. 
reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first-home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.